It's great to see the people of God gathering on the Lord's Day, and um, I'm not unaware of all the realities that may go through our hearts and minds as we gather. And even as we have been meeting today, I've just been praying that God would protect us as a congregation, that God would preserve us from any sorts of uh, danger that might come and um, cause us to have difficulty as the people of God gathering. It is so good to hear your voices. One of the benefits of sitting near the front is I get to hear all your voices fill my head, and it is so good to hear God's people um, sing. One of the songs that we sang, uh, and you know, we sing these songs, and I, I don't know if we always know what we sing or why we sing them, but uh, there's that verse that says, um, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, um, but it was a song that was written by Charles Wesley in the time of the Enlightenment. And the time of the Enlightenment was they thought that reason could solve all the problems of the world, that reason had all the answers to all the questions that you face. But as we know, human reason fails us all the time. And so Charles Wesley um, was a man who was changed by the Spirit of God. And when he sings this or he writes this verse, he says, he says, I was bound by sin in nature's night. And then he says, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dudgeon flame with light. In other words, the revelation of God poured into him. And he finally understood truth and God. And so when we sing that verse, that's what it's about, is that our reason alone holds us hostage. We need God to open our eyes and see the truth of the world in which we live. Just a little bit of hymnology for you this morning. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to 2 Peter, and I want to read uh, uh, a little bit of a longer portion from 2 Peter just to catch us up for the last three weeks. Um, uh, Pastor Barry and Pastor uh, Andrew have been taking us through a short series on the church from the book of Ephesians, and I thank the Lord for their faithful ministry and their commitment to truth. And now we're back in the book of Peter and hope to finish it over the next uh, two or three weeks. And so I want to begin by starting at verse 1 of chapter 3. And we need reading to verse 10. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. But by that, and, and by that means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the fire and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. 
and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its help in our lives. Thank you for the perspective that your truth gives to our lives. We're here, we're gathered together. We've got no place to go for the next few minutes. So would you help us settle in, engage our minds, listen to your word, process it in our minds, work it down into our hearts and wills, And may your word change and transform us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter, we began by realizing what God had done for us, and he has done so much for us and the many things he has given to us. And as a response of all that God has given to us, God expects from us a response to that. And Peter describes that response, which is simply Christ-likeness. And as we engage Christ and as we embrace Christ, our assurance becomes more and more sure in our hearts until we reach the end of our lives and we gain a wide open entrance into his eternal kingdom. But after Peter has described that for us, he describes something that is troubling him and something that is necessary not only for his people but for all of God's people to be reminded of. And that is this, the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, the world will be ushered into a day of judgment. Those two days, I believe, coincide together. This is his main point. He wants to remind them not to forget that Jesus Christ is coming again. And he wants to drive home that point, and he gives them sort of a few things to latch on to. He says, he first tells them about an experience that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration, which was really a prefiguring of that day when Christ comes back. He saw Christ transformed and his robes became white and he saw the glory and the power of Christ. And beside Christ were um, uh, Moses and Elijah and God's voice spoke, which is a sort of a precursor of that day when Christ comes in all his power and glory with all his saints with him. But he says, I want you to also know that what's even more important than my experience or what backs up my experience is the word of God. And he says, the prophets of old have declared again and again that God is coming back, that there will be at the end of this age a day of judgment. There will be at this end of the age when Christ comes back a conclusion to life as we know it here on earth. And so you might ask yourself, well, why, why is this such an important issue? Why does it matter to the people of God? Why does it matter to those that are reading Peter's letter? Well, in broad strokes, one of the reasons it matters is because at the end of this age will come a period of judgment. It's not something we like to think about. It's not something that we always want to hear. But some of us actually are looking forward to that day. We're, we're so confused by the lack of righteousness and judgment that we see in the world around us. And we wonder, will there ever be a day when truth is fully exposed, when justice is finally delivered? And Peter tells us, and the Bible tells us, that the end of this age, when Christ comes back, it will be a time of judgment. So he wants to warn us and prepare for that day. The second thing, though, that makes this such an important issue is that there have be those that arise amongst the church, and they have for the last thousands of years, those who arise amongst us and come from within the church even, that say it's a bunch of hogwash. You know, this, this Christ coming back stuff, it's, it's never happened. You know, things have gone on as they have for years and years, for thousands of years. What makes you so sure that Christ is coming back again? 
And they do it in such a way that allows them then to discard ethics and morals. In other words, they can pursue the passions of their flesh. They can pursue their sexual delights. And they can encourage others to do the same by saying there is no day of judgment. Come on, get over yourself. It's a fear tactic. It's never going to happen. And so Peter takes time to rebut their claims. And regarding the day of judgment, he says, listen, they say that there's no day of judgment coming. Well, understand this, that God has already judged the angels who sinned and he is keeping them for the final condemnation on that day of judgment. And then he says, and God also judged the ancient world through the flood, which was a universal cataclysmic event in which all of humanity, save Noah and the seven that were with him, were preserved. And then he says, and God also judged Sodom and Gomorrah by fire, through which he saved Lot and his two daughters out of that. And so he says, just as God has done that, God is storing up judgment for that last day. So Peter wants to assure us that the word of God and biblical history makes it very clear that no, God is a God of judgment. As he comes to chapter 3, which we started reading today, there's a tone change. And all of a sudden he moves from an emphasis on these false teachers and what their teaching is and what their lives are characterized by to speaking really in a gentle pastoral way to the people of God. Beloved. That is such a beautiful, warm word, beloved. It's a word that reminds us of God's deep, deep love for us. For God so loved the world. For God demonstrated his love towards us. For behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. God has adopted us into his family. His great love has been poured out upon us such that we are children of God. And so when we hear this wonderful word, beloved, it's a reminder of the lengths and the breadth and the width and the height of the love of God towards us. And so he, he says to these people, these readers, beloved, I want you to know that in the last days, scoffers are going to come, mockers are going to come, and their whole desire is to try and cast doubt on the return of Jesus Christ and what the Word of God tells us about this coming day of judgment. But Peter says they, they, they deliberately overlook this fact. What is this fact? They deliberately overlook the power of the Word of God. Because it was the Word of God that spoke and the heavens and the earth were created. They didn't evolve over billions and billions of years. They are the response of God speaking and they exist. And he says, by that same powerful word that created the heavens and the earth, God spoke again and he flooded the known world at that time in a universal catastrophic flood. And he said, by that same word that created the world, that flooded the world, by that same word, God is holding forth this day of judgment which will come upon the world. And so that brings us then to our text where we are this morning. Just a quick um, recap. And I want to do it sort of from two angles as we head down this path. One is from the characteristics of God. I want us, as we look at these three verses, 8, 9, and 10, to think about various things about God, to think about the timing of God, to think about the character of God, to, 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 to think about um, the people of God, to think about God's exhortation towards us and His Word to us. So these verses tell us a lot about God. But they also answer a lot of questions. 
And so I've got five questions that I want to answer over the next three weeks. The first one is, why, the day, why doesn't the day of the Lord fit into our calendars? We've got calendars on our wall. We've got them in our computers. We've got them in our pocketbooks. Why does the day of the Lord not fit into our calendar? Secondly, why has the day of the Lord not yet come? Thirdly, what will happen when the day of the Lord comes? Fourthly, how are we to live anticipating the coming day of the Lord? And fifthly, sort of similar to it, is what are we to do in light of the coming day of the Lord? So we're going to deal with three of those today. First is simply this God's timing. Why can't I put the return of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord on my calendar? Well, Peter says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. He wants to draw our attention to Scripture, and it's fascinating the way that he does it. Back in verse 5, he says of the false teachers, they overlook this one fact. They have selective reading skills when they come to the Word of God and the truths about God. They see something they don't like and they discard it. That's a very dangerous way for you and I to approach Scripture. It's the da very dangerous way for uh, people who preach to approach Scripture to say, well, I'm not going to deal with that because it's pretty hard to deal with and I don't like it and it's controversial or it doesn't suit my lifestyle, but I'll deal with these things. And so Peter contrasts the false teachers with the people of God. He says, they overlook this one fact, but he says to the people of God, don't overlook this one fact. Don't have spiritual amnesia. Don't have willful amnesia when you read the Bible. It's just a reminder to all of us. When you read the Bible, read it from Genesis to Revelation. Don't skip over the parts that are hard to read. Don't skip over the parts that are challenging. Don't skip over the parts that prick your conscience. Read it all. And what is the one fact that they're not to overlook? That God's perspective of time is different from human perspectives of time. And he quotes Psalm 90 verse 4 when he psalmist writes, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. In Psalm 90, Moses is comparing the eternal reality of God, the everlasting nature of God, with the temporary transient nature of humankind. God is from everlasting to everlasting. We are but a breath in the wind. And so Peter uses this to help us understand the delay and why we can't put it on our calendar. When, when Peter writes that a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years, he's not giving us a mathematical equation. He's not giving us an interpretive grid through which we now can go and understand the Bible when it refers to a day. In other words, some people take this verse in Psalm 90 and they apply it to Genesis chapter 1. And they say, well, a day is like a thousand years. And so God didn't really create the earth in six days, but he did it in 6,000 years. Because a day after all equals a thousand years and a thousand years equals a day. So there we get 6,000 years. That's not what Peter is doing at all. He's not giving us a mathematical equation. What Peter is wanting to do is he wants to illustrate to us how God's timing and his timetable is different from ours. God is from everlasting to everlasting. And when you think about this, God is not very, very, very old. God just is. He lives outside of time. He is from everlasting to everlasting. His view of time is different than ours. He has always been at work, and he is working out his will, but not in minutes and days and hours like we want to know, but according to his will. 
Now, all of us here know something about this by experience. We, we, we do. We have a different perspective on time from our kids. Those of you who have ever taken a trip with your kids, say you're going to go to, I said Calvary this morning, but I really meant Calgary because Calgary is not Calvary. But say you're going to take a trip to Calgary, 12 hours. You pack up the car, you throw the kids, well, yeah, I guess you buckle the kids in nowadays. We used to throw the kids in the car. But you buckle your kids up in the car and you, you might pray and they say, hey, kids, we're going to Calgary. It's going to be a long trip, so get out your coloring books and get out your counting games and here we go. No sooner are you out of the driveway. Are we there yet? And then you get to the ferry terminal. Are we there yet? And then you get to Hope. Are we there yet? And you as a dad or a mom understand 12 hours a little bit differently than a child of three, four, eight years old. In, in much the same way as when you get to be my age and older, I'm not going to give it away, but I am getting old, I look back on time differently. And I can even realize now, wow, time just flies by. But when you're in your 20s and 30s, time has a different perspective. It has a different viewpoint. You have a different way of working it through. And so just as we as human beings have different perspectives on time, God has a very different perspective on time than all of human time. That's why we can't put the day of the Lord on our calendar. We simply need to trust that God has a plan, that God's word is trustworthy, and that in the fullness of time, God will send his son back to earth. Now, there's a further pastoral application, I think, of this to your life and my life. We need to learn to trust the timing of God in our day-to-day -day lives, don't we? We sometimes pray and we expect that God will answer that prayer by the end of the day. And we're frustrated when he doesn't. And so then all of a sudden we say, okay, God, I'll give you a week. And we, we start thinking about a week. It might be we want to get married and it's been a year or two and God really hasn't provided us with a spouse. And so we begin to say, God, God, listen, what are you up to? Uh, you know, it's been two years now, I'm not married. Or maybe it's a, 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 a wife who wants to have a child and for whatever reason, God has not opened the womb yet. And there's an anxiousness that develops and we mark off days on the calendar or maybe it's an illness that strikes us and we've not been healed of that illness and we carry it with us for a while. And we wonder, God, what are you up to? God, it's been four years and I've been troubled by this illness. Why won't you heal me? And sometimes we need to sit back and, and accept and live in and say, God, but I understand that your perspective of time and your working out of your plan in my life is not according to my calendar, but it's according to your good and perfect will for my life. I will trust you in whatever it is you are doing in my life. God has a plan for you and for me. God has a plan for this world. And God has a plan for the end of this age when Christ will come again and the day of judgment will be ushered in. Understand that God is not limited by a human lifespan. Do you know that? God is not limited by a human lifespan. But rather, he looks out over periods of time from which or by which human standards might say, that's a really, really long time. But from divine standards, it's but a blink of the eye. 
And so that's one of the things that Peter wants us to understand as we anticipate the return of Christ. It's according to God's perspective of time, not our perspective of time. The second thing that is mentioned in verse 2 or verse uh, 9 is something of the character of God. Why has the day of the Lord not yet come? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. Why hasn't the day of the Lord ever come again? And I'm so glad as I was working through this to realize that Peter went to verse 9 and not skipped verse 9 and just gave us verse 10. Because if he skipped verse 9, we would have to just, in an in a even stronger way, by faith, trust God's word that Christ was going to come again. But Peter gives us the reason for God's delay. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. This is the reason behind God's delay. This is really helpful. It's helpful to guys like me who... who whose brains function in, in the fact that I need um, answers. They don't have to be the answers that I agree with, and, and they don't have to be the reasons that I agree with, but sometimes I just need a reason for why something is the way it is. And once I have that reason, then I can settle myself down and wrap my head around whatever it is I'm facing and accept it. Reason can change one's reaction to the delay. So for instance, if your teenager is out, and they have a curfew, and they're two hours past the curfew. And they come home, and they simply say, oh, you know, well, we were just kind of hanging out, and, you know, we were having fun, and I didn't really think two, ma two hours mattered. It's different than, you know, um, somebody was really in trouble, and they didn't get their ride, and I needed, them to, I needed to take them home. My cell phone wasn't working. And so I thought it was better to risk being late a couple hours and get them home safely and me be late than just leave them hanging. The reason behind the delay, delay makes all the difference in the world. And so that is true of the reason for the delay behind the Lord's return. God's patience. God's patience. So do any of us want to argue with God? And say, God, this is really silly. Why, why didn't you come yesterday? Why didn't you come by the end of this week? This, no, no, God is patient. And why is he patient? Why is he patient? I understand there are some, this is a really theologically different or difficult verse. I, I'm not going to get into theological implications of it today because that's for another eight or nine messages. But Peter gives the reason for the delay this way. God is patient. We see the patience of God as he waited 120 years before the flood hit the ancient world. We see the patience of God as he waited for Nineveh and for Jonah to get on board with his plan. And so these recipients of the letter are in need of the patience of God. And you might say, well, why does God need to be patient with me? Do you ever consider that the reason that the Lord has not returned yet, that Christ has not come back yet, is for your benefit? Remember, Peter is writing to the church. These are people that, that he loves dearly. These are people that, that have embraced the Christian way, so to speak. And he says, God is patient with you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Therefore, children of God, be all the more diligent to confirm your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. One of the things that I have come to accept as a pastor is that all of 
the people that attend a morning service, even this morning service, have embraced the gospel. I never assume that all who have said they embrace the gospel have embraced the gospel in a saving way. I never assume that any of us, for any moment, is immune from the entanglements of sin. There is no such thing as herd immunity when it comes to salvation. You will not get into heaven because your parents get in. You will not get into heaven and enjoy eternal life because your grandparents are there. This is a very clear reminder to us that salvation is between you and God and you and God alone. I've said this so many times, but I say it again to us as a congregation. The Bible really speaks more often, no, not really, it does speak more often about the process of salvation as opposed to the act of salvation. And I don't think we've been helped in the Christian community over the last 50, 60 years by, by saying, if I confess my sins, if I raise my hand and I say a sinner's prayer, I am saved. That is part of the process, but it's not the start and the end of the process. The Bible speaks about salvation in three tenses. It speaks about it in the past tense. I have been saved. It speaks about in the present tense. You are being saved. And it speaks about it in the future tense. You will be saved. And that all is encompassed in the process of salvation. And that doesn't mean that we can't have assurance as we walk with God, but it does mean that our salvation is not perfected and not completed until the day Christ returns. As the Bible says clearly, he who endures to the end will be saved. Also, the Bible has a parable in it which is very helpful, but it's illustrated of truths throughout the Scripture, the parable of the sower and the seed. And it speaks of four categories of people upon who the Word of God falls in their heart. And all of these four different groups of people, these four hearts, respond to the Word of God. Some people respond very, very quickly. And, and before they've even had a chance to think it through, Satan comes along and steals it from their heart because their heart is so hard. There's another group of people who, who absorb the Word of God and it seems really cool and it really begins to change their life. And all of a sudden, tribulation comes because of the Word. People start making fun of them at school. Or maybe their brother or sister or their husband or wife or their workmates say, oh, what are you doing? Like, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. You believe what? And you fall away. Or there are those who embrace the Word of God for a longer period of time. But it says the cares of the world sneak in like thorns and choke out the Word so there is no fruit. And so there are those that then for a long time can follow a particular road and yet never be truly saved. And then there are those upon which the Word of God fells. It's fertile ground and they produce fruit 60, 90, 100 full. Scripture also warns about developing an unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. There is a sense, loved ones, in which every single one of us here today needs to take seriously the patience of God. God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Is there something in your life that you need to leave off? 
something in your life that, that you've embraced and you say, this is really compatible with Christian faith, but it's not at all. Is there a hidden sin that's festering in your life and it's growing and you don't really want to deal with it? You, you, you rather enjoy it. And you think, well, it's okay, I'm saved and God doesn't really care about this. You know, He knows I'm not perfect. Is there unbelief that has captured your mind? I've seen that happen, you know, that difficult circumstances come into a person's life and rather than driving them to God in trust and reliance, it drives them away from God with unbelief and anger. The delay in the return of Christ should not be a matter of complaint, but it should be a matter of great opportunity for every single one of us to regularly go before the Lord and repent and put our life before Him who sees everything and knows everything and say, God, I'm so sorry. I've drifted. I've strayed. Will you bring me back? Thank you for the forgiveness and the cleansing that I receive as I confess my sins to Christ. But the patience of God is not just for you and I who are here in this building or listening on live stream. The patience of God is for everybody that's around us. God's desire is that all should reach repentance. God's desire is that none should perish. I understand there is a, a theological difference between the desire of God and the decree of God, and this is not the time for us to wrestle with that this morning. Other than, are you concerned with your children? Are you concerned about your neighbors? Are you concerned about your spouse? Do you have a sense in which God's delay is a delay of patience and mercy so that they might have one more opportunity for you to share the gospel with them? They may have one more chance for you to tell them about Christ and how Christ will forgive all their sins. They need not do anything but simply look to Christ and they will be saved. That for those that you go to school with, for those that you work with, that God's patience is an opportunity that those that you rub shoulders with may hear of His love and the forgiveness that is available in Christ. For God so loved the world, right? That He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. May God help us to take advantage of His patience. And the final thing is God's purpose. What will happen when the day of the Lord comes? Though there is a reason for the delay, God's patience, never, never, ever mistake the patience of God for impotence or for a license to sin. God help us never to confuse His patience and mercy with tolerance or an inability to act. Why? Know this. The day of the Lord will come. Those seven words need to settle into our hearts and minds. The day of the Lord will come. The verb will come is placed at the very beginning of this Greek sentence. English doesn't do this as much as Greek and Hebrew do, but when they want to emphasize a word, they put it at the beginning of a sentence. So this is in the emphatic position. 
this is Peter's way, and all the readers would have known right away that this really needed to be heard. It will come. What? The day of the Lord like a thief. For some, it will be a day of judgment. For others, it will be a day of salvation. But the day of the Lord will come. And what will happen on the day of the Lord? The coming, when Christ comes back again. What will happen on that day? These are really hard words to wrestle through in our minds for so many reasons. But we really need to, I was going to say brace ourselves, but prepare ourselves for what Peter says next. Because he describes a situation of cosmic combustion, which, is, which almost defies explanation or understanding. This makes a worldwide nuclear event pale in comparison to what will happen at the end of the age. It makes any prediction about climate change look like child's play in contrast to what God says will happen at the end of age when he returns through Christ. Then the heavens and the earth, created by God, sustained by God, will be destroyed by him before the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. Three things that will happen. He says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. Very simple language, very complex to sort of wrap our heads around. The most likely reference to the word heavens here is the heavens above us. And not most likely, it is. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. When we look up and see the sky and the sun and the moon and the stars and the clouds and everything up there, they speak to us about the power and the glory of God. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by, his breath, by the breath of his mouth all their host. Everything in the heavens was made by the word of God. Or as the very first book in the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so by heavens, Peter is referring to the heavens above us and all that they contain. He says they will pass away. It's predicted so many times in Scripture by Jesus, by Isaiah, by the psalmist, by John, when John says, Then I saw a new heaven and the earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. How will they pass away? He says they will pass away with a roar. It's hard for us to sort of wrap our heads around a roar. I got a couple of examples for what a roar might seem like. It's the only time in the Bible this word is ever used, either in the New Testament or in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But it's, it's, it's not unknown in Greek literature. And it's a word that carries with it the meaning of a, a loud noise or a great noise or something that vanishes with a terrible noise, a, a whizzing sound or a crackling sound that objects emit as fire consumes them. And so on that day, the noise from the disintegrating atoms in the heavens will be deafening. I've had the occasion from time to time to collect debris piles in my backyard. And I collect big debris piles. And I throw all the dead stuff on these piles and I might throw pallets and I might throw little pieces of wood and all that sort of stuff. And I have these beautiful debris piles. And then comes a day when all of a sudden they lift the fire ban. And so I go out there with some kind of accelerant and I pour this accelerant all over my debris pile. And silly me stands about a foot and a half away with a match 
and you flick it on the debris pile. And you know what happens. There's just this whoosh. And it blows you back and you feel the heat of the fire and you think, man, that was a stupid thing to do. And all the crackling and all the burning from the debris pile, it's not unlike some of you who laugh at me and say, that's a pretty dumb thing, Paul, who have your barbecue and your igniter's not working. And you turn on your propane and you try the igniter, that's not working. And you kind of leave it on and you go in the house and you get a match and you come back out and you lift the lid and you throw the match on. Yeah, see, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, take that and multiply that by infinity. The roar and the rush of the power of God as this universe disintegrates will be deafening. And then Peter tells us that the heavens will be burned up or the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Some of your Bibles will say the elements. By that, I think it's very clear that he's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies, everything that is in the heaven. Peter writes, We're waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Isaiah says, All the hosts of heaven will rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from a tree. Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Complete disintegration by fire. And the third thing he says, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's a really difficult word to figure out. And another word is they will be found. What possibly could Peter be saying here? I, I think it's along these lines. As God thunders out of heaven and as fire consumes heaven and all the heavenly bodies and they're all destroyed, earth will be exposed. Every act and every deed of mankind will be exposed. Revelation 20 verse 11 speaks of the great white throne judgment when all of humanity will stand before God and the books will be open and everything we have ever done is written in those books. And Peter is describing for us the reality that the Bible tells us again and again as, as Hebrews says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. As Proverbs says, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, observing the wicked and the good. In other words, as the heavens melt and they're destroyed, everything on earth will be laid bare. It will be, it will be exposed. All the wicked deeds that humanity has ever done will come to light before the judgment of God. This is not an easy picture to absorb, is it? Just as we have so much trouble embracing climate change, some more than others, and the catastrophic predictions that are made with that, how much more difficult is it for us to embrace this truth that one day the heavens are going to burn and melt and we're going to stand before God? But such realities that are described in Scripture are not the realities that are left to making sense because our imaginations can wrap their heads around them. Rather, these are things that we need to embrace because the Word of God is trustworthy and true. 
And history proves again and again that God's word is true. Loved ones, God is real. And that what? Changes everything. I happen to be reading this story this past week. This is why I love reading, because I come across things that I never knew and I don't know, and I don't know a lot of things. But I never knew that on an early November morning in 1833, there was a terrifying event that happened all over the United States. One person describes it this way as a frightening, frightened little boy ran to his mother saying, Oh, mother, mother, the world is coming to an end. The stars are falling. Startled from her sleep, the mother rushed to the window and saw what was probably one of the most remarkable meteor showers that, have, that has ever been witnessed by humankind in our world today. One observer, competent observer of these events declared that he had never seen snowflakes thicker in a storm than there were in the sky some moments that day. The meteors made no sound and none were reported to have hit the earth. But many accounts say everywhere people were falling on their faces thinking that the end of the world had come. But what did she say? to her little boy when she thought herself that maybe the world was coming to the end. Thank God I'm ready. The day of the Lord will come. Are you ready? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? What is holding you back from repentance? Why will you not leave off your pride and leave off your rebellion and leave off your stubbornness and come before God through Christ and admit your need for help? Admit your need for a Savior so that you too can say when the heavens burn and the elements melt, and the earth and everything done on it is exposed, you can say, I am ready. Father, we thank you for your word today. These are not the stuff that we maybe think we're going to hear when we come to church. Maybe not even the kind of things that we spend too much time thinking on when we read them in our Bibles. But everywhere throughout the Bible, from the Old to the New Testaments, you tell us again and again and again that you are coming back. And that when you come back, when your son returns, that that will usher in the end of the age and the day of judgment. There will be nowhere to turn, nowhere to hide. Father, this is not meant to be a scare tactic. I think you know my heart. That's the farthest thing from what I want to do. I just want to tell the truth. I need to remind myself the truth. I need to remind your people today of the truth. Father, would your spirit take it from here and do a work in our hearts and lives that brings about repentance in all of us and salvation in many more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.